Hi everyone, uh, thanks for joining us for another episode of Legends of the Spire. Uh, on the podcast today we've got Tony Lorma. Uh, Tony Lorma's from the northeast, um, a product of Walls End Boys Club, the big famous uh, club in the northeast that feeds Newcastle United. Um, we spoke about his debut for Newcastle and his, his first goal for them as well, in which resulted in Paul Gascoigne swinging from the crossbar uh, in very Paul Gascoigne fashion. Um, he then had a successful spell at Lincoln, where he scored lots of goals, and we spoke about his time there and the Fudge Shop, halfway up the hill towards the cathedral, the highlight of any trip to Lincoln, and then spoke about his time at Chesterfield, in which he's probably most famous for scoring in the 1995 playoff final against Berry, in which he says that he played rubbish in that match. Um, but it's good speaking about that, and the FA Cup run too, in which he, he scored in the early rounds uh, in that big famous FA Cup run. Uh, we then spoke uh, quite quite a bit as well about his time after playing football. He's both battled with alcoholism uh, straight after he retired, um, and then has battled and beaten cancer on more than one occasion now. And I will just put a, a quick warning on before we get on to those uh, chats about uh, about his uh, struggles with drink and his battles with cancer, just in case anyone's currently affected uh, by any of those and wants a bit of a warning before it comes on. Uh, but yeah, Tony Lorma, he had one of the best goal celebrations I've ever seen. Um, I really loved watching him score. Um, and yeah, absolutely great to talk to. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. Uh, here is Tony Lorma. I'm always conscious being a football fan that um, I know a few players have said this, that they have, when they, they walk over the white line onto the pitch, you have to put on kind of a, a, a bit of a, uh, a bravado or a bit of a, an attitude maybe to like survive on the pitch. And yet players off the pitch are completely different, aren't they? A lot of the time. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's, it's really strange. A few, a few years ago, I was doing, um, I was working for a company and we used to work with like, best way to put it like we used to go into schools and do run programs and we do it and we we get the naughty kids you see so we'd run a program that would sort of help them and i listened to a podcast on the way across and it was uh, it was joey barton mm. uh first when it first the first came out and he did one with um, a guy who um, was a psychologist and he talked about psych- psychopaths um and it really because you hear about players who are completely chalk and cheese playing, you see. And it talk, obviously, it was all about how you can have psychopathic traits, how you can dial them up and dial them down whenever you need them. And it was really interested. I really, really looked into that quite a lot. And you can do a test and stuff like that. And um, so I did a test. I tried to do it as normal as possible. And then I did one, like, my, my thought process of when I used to play football. Mm. And they were, they were a million miles apart. And I was, like, on the high end of, of like, psychopathic traits when I was a footballer or when, you know, training and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it's quite interesting. And I think, um, what was it? It's true a lot of people say, you know, I think uh, you cross that white line and there is, you know, a, a, a switch. And I, I was never... You know, I was never a Vinnie Jones or a, you know, Justin Fashnew or something like that. It was just, it was just a mindset of, of winning, really. Yeah, and, you know, so. and there's loads of players that I've spoken to that have 
that have, have been like the same. They're like, actually, you wouldn't believe it, but I'm really quiet in the dressing room. And I just used to drive to drive to training and train and then go home again. And, you know, oh, yeah. and, 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 you know, you, as, as a fan, you get a completely different, um, yeah. different look of, of who you think a player is because you'll see them, you know, being a bit aggressive or flying into tackles and, and stuff. And then they'll walk off the pitch and they're really quiet and really shy. So shall we start at the beginning then? So, so you're yeah. like a product of... Wells End Boys Club, which is like the famous <laughs> northeast club, isn't it? Where Shearer and Beardsley and yeah. all, all those other great players have, have started. So that's where you started as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. My first, uh, I, remember, I remember being about six year old. I played, played my first five-a-side match there. Um, and from that, they used to like, people would watch you play five-a-side and then say, would you like to play for the 11-a-side? So... I used to play with my mates, um, obviously down there quite a lot. Um, and then I, I just got asked if I wanted to play for the 11 side team. And I remember the first, I was, it was under nines. So what was it? So yeah, so, um, so I just remember getting into that. Um, and I always remember the first, the first 11 side match we had, we played the under 10s and we got beat about 26 nil, you know? So it was, um, that was my first first you know taste of uh, of eleven aside football, um, but what happened was I was I was really lucky uh, at quite a young age. I was really tall. Uh, I, was, I was tall and gangly, um, but obviously it gave me an advantage. So at a very young age, I saw I was scoring lots of goals, and we in Newcastle they do the schooling difference. So it's like a first school, middle school, and high school. So the middle school, uh, well, I would have been about eleven, um, and we had we just had a team, a football team, which for for three or four years we never lost. We lost our very final match before we went to high school. So we had a reputation, you know, of, of doing well, and, and obviously I was playing in a successful team, scoring lots of goals, um, and that just gives you confidence even at that age, you know. So, um, so yeah, I think. I mean, up until I didn't move to Wall's End until I was five. So I used to live, uh, I was born in Ashington, lived out uh, in Northumberland, um, and then came into Wall's End when I was five. So, um, so a lot of things dropped into place. You know, you, you know, talk about people being lucky and in the right place at the right time. And even at five, six year old, um, we probably only went to play at the boys' club at six year old just for a kickabout, you know. And, the next thing you know, you're 12 hours involved with Newcastle and like Walls End obviously was a feeder club for Newcastle. Yeah. And it was in, um, and things just, just sort of spiraled and spiraled and spiraled, you know. What, 12. what, what position were you uh, around and where were you playing? So I was all, it was really, this is really funny because I remember going, obviously I've done quite a lot of talks with like a lot of young, young people at school. I was talking about like obviously having that confidence and fear. And uh, I always wanted to be a centre forward. Uh, my dad was a centre forward. My dad played locally, you know, in and around Walls End in Newcastle. So I always wanted to be involved in scoring goals. Mm. And we sat in a room with, um, what was it? we had trials for our middle school. And we were sat in this room. And this lad went, so the, 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 the PE teacher went around and said, like, what position do you want to play? And this lad said midfield and nothing was said. And then this lad went, oh, I want to play centre forward. And the, and, the, and the teacher went, oh, you want to score all the goals? And then it, I was next. And he says, where do you want to play? And I went, oh, midfield. 
because I was quite shy, I didn't want that attention, you see. And ultimately, I was I wanted to be a centre forward. So, I've, well, literally, until until I signed for maybe Lincoln in Chesterfield, those they, they played me in midfield ultimately because I was just tall and fit, really, really fit. <laughs> wasn't wasn't a, what was a particularly good pass, and I think I could just run around and head it and kick it. So, um, <laughs> what was it? So yeah, I was a centre forward all my life, to be honest. And then, I couldn't understand why nobody would, else would want to score goals. So. Yeah, and then you ended up at Newcastle, didn't you? And you, I think, made your debut against was it Spurs? You made your debut. Oh goodness, yes. Um, yeah. yeah. What, what do you remember about? Uh, were, were they always the team that you'd supported? Yeah. So I mean, in Newcastle, I mean, ultimately Newcastle as a young lad, there's nothing else. You know what I mean? Um, even nowadays, you know, I mean, the rugby teams as well. I mean, the basketball teams had a lot of success, but you know, you never hear about it. Everybody supports Newcastle. And wants to play for them. So they say at 12, I got involved in Newcastle. Um, because I was tall, I went and played, I was playing under 14 football. Um, and it sort of just, it just, it, it, it just grew, grew from there, really. Um, they say I was very, very fit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that game against Spurs, I'd been in and around the team for a little while. I played a couple of friendlies. I, actually, we, the first thing was, we had a friendly Queen of the South and actually went up to, well, like his kit man, uh, skip man, you know, carry the skips and stuff like that. And then, um, and I think almost, I was like the last shirt given out. And it was like, oh, I'll chuck that on and then just join in sort of thing. I wasn't, I had no idea I was going to be like, prepared for it. And then, um, and then within about 10 minutes, the centre four got injured. One of the lads got injured and it was just like, oh, go on, go on. On you go straight away. So I had like no nothing to think about. It was just like throwing in. I think I must have been still sixteen, and um, and I scored within about ten minutes, you know. And then you're just involved in it, and I was involved in it from you know from getting in Newcastle. It's, it's obviously it's sixteen. Um, so I was in and around the place a lot. I played in a couple of friendlies. We played in Monaco in a friendly as well, and I played in that. So. I knew it was coming, sort of thing. So, um, and they were they were really good. They looked after me. I got thrown on literally about two minutes ago. They were two nil up. It was two minutes ago. I just remember the noise and the smell. And you talk about crossing that white line. You remember sitting there as, as a as a um, as a substitute, but actually, that physically taking that first step onto that pitch, you just all of a sudden you just got everybody looking at you. You see the whole attentions on you. And then the other players, and that was, you either sink or swim, really. And I, I, I flourished, you know, I just enjoyed it. It was brilliant. You know, I um, I think I got and I got touched the ball twice. I gave it away both times. I got nutmegged off Chrissy Waddle, and then I found fouled up uh, Ardiles. And that was like me two minutes of fame, you know. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it was just fantastic, you know, to be a 16, 17 year old. Playing for your hometown club was it was quite amazing. Do you find yourself um, like being really conscious about what you're doing in terms of like not looking at the crowd, looking at because you must just want to like when you're on the pitch, just want to like have a good look around and stuff. And <laughs> you're really like conscious about <laughs> about just little stupid things that you might be doing while you're on the pitch. I was never. It was weird because I'm I'm quite shy and I was quite shy as a kid, you know, um, and walking onto that pitch. 
we, we talked about earlier on about how people are different. It, it, it we, I walked on that pitch, and, and that I, I was almost like my my theatre. You know, if yeah. you know if that makes sense, and it was, um, and I never felt conscience conscious of, of what people thought of me and what I might be doing. It was just. It's just another game of football, to be honest. And I think it's only when you get a bit more experienced and pressure comes onto you, and you, you know, you, you, you know, the times where chest field some of the really important games and stuff like that. Um, uh, you know, I think you, you just want to play. You just play football. It's it's fun. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. between your mates. You know, so um, it, it's quite funny up until probably that semi final for Chesterfield in the playoffs. Was the, probably the first high pressurised game I really felt I'd gone into. You see, so uh, and the rest of the time I just felt I was playing with my mates and just enjoying it. Yeah, and you had some really fun characters around Newcastle team mm. at time, didn't you? What was it like uh, just training with them on day to day to day basis and, and stuff? No, like that? it was brilliant. It was really good because we had. I mean, obviously Paul Gascoigne was there, you know, and Paul was brilliant because. He, all he ever said to me was just control if just control the ball and just give me the ball. I don't mind who's on it. And for a young lad, all I used to do was control it and pass to him and run in the box. And that's all I ever used to do. But then there was um uh, there was people like so Glenn Roder, who unfortunately just passed away, mm. uh, Dave McCreary, Paul Goddard, like old like players with masses of experience, but just had such high standards. And Dave McCreary had just come back from the World Cup, you know, and mm-hmm. um, uh, and they just, they just they just set standards in training and how they how they held themselves in and around the club. And you, I learned a lot off that, really. And and your first goal, uh, yeah. Oxford, I think it was. That was a proper goal. Uh, <laughs> just like di- diving header. Uh, Elegant. Good, good, good celebration as well. Uh, it's just like a, a proper goal that wasn't it. Well, it's funny because. You know how things stick in your mind. I mean, but the, obviously the, the back pass gets cut out by Michael O'Neill, and then and then I just thought, oh, he's going to cross it, you know, because there was a lad on the post, I think, and he, he crossed it, and literally in my mind was, it, don't miss it, don't miss it. What's and I thought to myself, what's the biggest thing, area, surface I could have to make sure I wasn't going to miss it? So that's why I stuck my head on it because I thought if I try and volley and I miss it, I'll. So the biggest thing I had was my head. <laughs> so I just stuck my head on it and obviously it sort of slipped and slided into the back of the net. And by the time I spun around, everybody was in was in the back of the net. Uh, Gaza was swinging on the crossbar and stuff like that, you know. So, um, so yeah, and it's just things, how, how things go through your mind and you don't forget things. You know? Because all the, I should have just tapped it in, but I was petrified of, of missing that opportunity. Oh, no, a diving header every, every day. <laughs> and then, if we go on a bit, so then you ended up at Lincoln, didn't you? Kind of eventually, after, after a while. And, and yeah. you played kind of nearly as, nearly as many games as you played for Chesterfield for them, didn't you? And, uh, so how did, how did you end up kind of up in, in Lincoln? So when I first went to Newcastle, we had a, we had a youth team coach called, called uh, John Pickering who was brilliant, and I'd worked with John from being like 14, 15, 16-year-old. By the time I got, by the time we got, as in as an apprentice, and I was full-time at Newcastle, he was first-team coach, so he really helped and pushed me to get into the first team 
uh, by training and stuff like that. So I had a really close relationship. Now, the times going through with Newcastle, uh, the William Mac Four was the manager who put me in. And within about 18 months, he'd got the sack, and then Jim Smith came in. And ultimately, the club got relegated. They needed to get out what be the championship now. So I was never getting a game. And I got a phone call. John, rang, John Pickering rang us up and just said, like, fancy working together again. I'm, I'm first team coach at Lincoln. And I just thought, you know, I, I really trusted John and I'd really got on well with him. And he, we just sat down and had a conversation. He said, let's work hard together and come down the league. Play as, we'll just play as many games as you can and we'll just try and get you back, you know, to back up the league. So, um, so I just thought, yeah, why not? You know, at 19, I left home. I bought a house in Lincoln, you know, really sort of settled um, and put my roots into Lincoln. And, um, and I think it was it was really funny because in the February, I signed in the February for Lincoln and I got about nine or ten goals, I think it was, or maybe eight or nine goals in quite a short space of time. And then um, and in them days, we didn't have the transfer window. And there was a big story in the back page of Bournemouth had put a bid in for me and Harry, Harry Redknapp was the manager. Hmm. Um, and I think Lincoln paid 25 grand for me and it was all of a sudden, it was called from a lean quid on the back of the, the Lincoln paper. So basically I was told it was nothing and I wasn't, they weren't going to sell us. And the end of the season came around and in those days what you do, like you play the final game on a Saturday and then on the Monday you'd go in, you'd have a meeting Everybody went off on the holidays for yeah. a few weeks. So we got um so on that on that Monday we'd all go out for a drink. So I sat playing pool actually and one of the young lads came in and said, uh, Oh, Tony, you gotta go back to the ground. Uh, John wants to speak to you. And I was like, Oh, they're gonna sell me now, you know, they're definitely gonna sell it. So I guess back to the ground and I meet Johnny and he's got he says, Come on, we'll have a walk around the pitch. So in my mind I'm I'm being sold a bonnet here. So we we get around and he's chatting away and he says, look, he says, um, he says, I've been approached by Middlesbrough to go back as their first team coach. And he says, I've got to take it. So he says, uh, I thought I'd just let you know, I'm moving back to the Northeast and taking a job with Middlesbrough. Um, so, and then, uh, what was it? And then from there, it, how things not go out of control, but like just things just changed, you know, and I just was bereft by injuries. Uh, at Lincoln, um, I think that next pre-season, I, I tore me college. Uh, the year after, I snapped, smashed my cheekbone. Uh, at the end of that season, obviously snapped my cruciates, and things just sort of just spiraled and spiraled and spiraled. And, and once I had, obviously, the I basically had my my right knee uh, reconstructed, uh, and and that changed everything. Really, I came from being tall and rangy and quick to being like a 14 stone target man you know i'd lost that mobility and mm. um, i should have retired really at that age you know um, and he was in such a bad way uh, but I, I knew nothing else and yes i thought well, i'll just continue playing football really were you quite um were you quite nervous or quite worried to play after coming back from those injuries. I imagine if it's your knee, it's we've had yeah. quite a few players on that have had really bad knee injuries. And yeah. Um I always kind of think you you obviously get out of rhythm of just playing every week, don't you, when you're out <laughs> that long. So do you just yeah. uh, do you get a bit nervous just about just base just doing basic runs and turns around the pitch or anything like that? I've, I mean I didn't play for really well, I didn't play for sixteen months. 
and probably the last four months was all running and training and so I was I was fairly confident it was all right. Um, the problem I had was my knee was my knee was too. I actually found out my cruciate had been put back in the wrong place. This was like ten years later, so my knee was really stable. It was probably too stable uh, or too stiff to a certain extent. So the new the one thing I knew it wouldn't do would give way. What it would do was it, it just I couldn't I couldn't fully bend my leg or straighten it. You mm. see, so. Um, so I was never really conscious. I was more conscious. I, I played with a limp for 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 many years. Um, so I was I was I was probably more conscious of the limp, you know, than actually giving way again. Yeah. And um, and did you quite did you quite enjoy the change in style of how you were playing? Or did no, you I hated really? It. Yeah, <laughs> I hated it because I was. Do you know what I mean? I was I was probably twelve stone. I was quick, agile. And I just then you just become you just become a big lump, do you know what I mean? And then you just get teams just smashed up. And you, every game's a fight, do you know what I mean? Because mm. without being awful, and 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 the, the position you played in, a lot of it was just balls just lump, you know, like keeper just hoofing it downfield and stuff like that. So, um, what was it? Um, so yeah, so every game just became a fight, really. Um, and you enjoyed the battle and stuff like that, and you, you get hardened to it. But like the actual, I mean, I was, you know, you brought up, you know, the walls ending, you brought up in Newcastle and how people play and how systems play and um, what was it? Those days soon when, when you're playing, you know, Division 4 and Division 3 football. You know. Yeah. Tony Lorma got his second. A quick check on the seating. After all, he hadn't scored at all since getting four on the final day of last season. And with five minutes left, he completed his hat-trick in the softest way imaginable. Clark's cross, off Humphrey's chest, then Lormer's, and Paul Musselwhite might have nightmares all week. Lincoln 4, Scunthorpe 2. And, and then you ended up at Chesterfield via a kind of a short spell at Peterborough, didn't you? Mm. Um, how did that really... all happen? <laughs> well, I got really, it was really strange. Lincoln got me fit, paid all that money to get me fit, and then released us. Um, so I was, I was a bit surprised at that. And then I actually went on trial to Peter Ripley in a trial match for them. And they had a new manager. And out of, I don't know, 40 odd people, I was the only person that took on. Um, and then the new manager, it was exactly what I wanted. He wanted to get a lot of people out of the club, so he was he was upsetting a lot of people by. We used to play two two reserve games. We play like on a Tuesday and a Wednesday every week, but it was a lot of that was my people like myself who just come into the club and people he wanted rid of. Mm. So when they come in, you you know if you want rid of a senior player, you upset them and you make them train at ridiculous times. But for me. It was two games a week, and it's everything I needed. And then I got into the team, uh, quite surprisingly, and I played a couple of games. And then out of nowhere, I mean, I've told this, this story a few times. I was actually in sat. In, I was in the house in Lincoln. I was ironing, and the phone rang, and it was uh, it was John Duncan, and he says, basically says, "Do you fancy coming across?" And we had a conversation. And uh, he says, oh, "I can't offer you any more money than you're getting at Peterborough. Peterborough was in the league above." And I just broke into the first team. So I said, well, there's, there's no real point in me signing, going down the league for no extra money 
to sort of have to start again to establish yourself in the routine, you know. And he just said, look, he said, have a think about it. And, you know, if it's still a no, it's no. So I turned, I said no to John first, first time round. And then I stood there eyeing and then I thought, well, it, somebody that, somebody that one, I, I always knew that in Peterborough, unless I was, you know, had this amazing run of goals, I was always going to be, um, when, the, when the players were fit, they'd go back in, you say. And I just thought, well, if somebody wants you, that was the first time I really thought, well, if somebody wants you, then go, you know. And if Peterborough allowed me to speak to them, then Peterborough are almost saying, you know, go and speak to them and sign for them. So, so I rang John back and just said, like, all right, let's have a go at it, you know, and see how we get on. And they gave me a two-year contract, which was like an extra year before I was getting to Peterborough. And then, as we, as we say, the rest was history. I signed Boxing Day, then we went on that terrific run, you know. Yeah. And... <laughs> And um, Lincoln's a really nice place. They've got an amazing foot shot, like on the way up to the castle. Oh yeah, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, was it like? Did you have to leave Lincoln and uproot, no. or did you did you stay? I stayed in Lincoln for twelve years. Um, so all the like, so that was quite lucky. So like Peterborough, Peterborough Chesterfield. I used to commute. It was only an hour or so. Mm. Preston was a little bit different. Um, I, I sort of rented a house in in, in Preston. And rented the house out in Lincoln, but then moved back, and then obviously Mansfield, and and then Hartlepool. So, sort of, um, you know, we saw sort of had a base uh, as Lincoln, so we just stayed there, and you know, um, yeah. and and just commuted to be honest. Because in them days, you, 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 house house was different. You know, you know, you, you could you could you could actually make move move to town in each club you moved to, but. Um, we were we were settled at the time, you know. The family was settled in Lincoln, so there was no point in changing it, really. Yeah, lovely place for a day out, isn't it? If anyone, oh, it's brilliant. A day out this summer. <laughs> oh yeah, well, funny enough, I um, what was it last weekend? We went to the beach with the kids, so went to Skeg, so drove through Lincoln, hmm. and um, so yeah, there's a lot of nice memories in Lincoln. You know, I had a really good, um, you know, a good, a good, a good, a good, a good time in Lincoln. You know. Yeah. Okay, so back to football. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was just going to talk about. Oh, yeah, it is a good foot shop. Yeah, it is a good foot shop. I want fudge now. Right. So, um, so yeah, then you come into the Chesterfield team, and like you said, went on that amazing twenty-one game unbeaten run. Mm. Um, what was the dressing room like? First day going in, what were the characters like in there? Was it an easy one to settle into? Um, yeah, it was fairly easy because obviously I played against Chesterfield many times. You know, um, I mean the big characters were the time obviously Nicky Law. Um, Sean's age, do you know what I mean? He was really like um, loud. He was the life and soul of the party. But there was a lot of, you know, Big Andy was very like calm, and Jamie was calm. So I don't know. It was it was really strange. Everyone talks about obviously like the, the run and, and and the goals I scored, but I don't think I scored for my first five games. You know, um, and I always remember how things how things happen. We played Fulham away and I think we drew nil-nil. Mm. Um, and I came off the pitch and I got a phone call that my uh, my daughter hadn't been very well. She was in hospital. So um, Laurie Madden gave me a lift home so I could get my car and get back to the get back to Lincoln as quickly as I could. So obviously in that co- in that car we were chatting away. So I've gone like five games without scoring a goal and stuff like that. And I always remember the conversation. Laurie says, "So what goals do you? What, what's your type of goal?" 
and I was like thinking, hang on, yeah, what's you know, it's there's a you know, there's a double edged sword here, you know, and he, and it was really because he was a senior player, you know, and I'm sure he had, you know, he was he had a lot of um, I think John probably lent on him quite a lot for a bit of advice and that, and, and I just thought just how things click, and I just thought, um, I better get me backside in the gear here, you know, mm. and we just had a conversation about it. And then, um, and then from then, I think I just I probably went on a run of probably again eight or nine goals in about ten or 15, 10 or fifteen games, you know. So, um, but the, the dressing room was fine; it was dead friendly. It was really strange because it was like people who had been at other clubs that played like for, like in their reserve team. So like like Robbo, Robbo, I think was playing for at the time at Huddersfield's reserves. And Tom Kerr's was um, was at university, so he was part time. David Moss had a job, so he'd come in in between work and stuff like that. So it was quite different. Um, I mean, at Peterborough, we used to train at Thomas Cook had training grounds, and literally as far as you could say was football, rugby pitches, uh, hockey pitches, immaculate. And my first training session was at Lang Lane, and I remember stood on the halfway line, and I was higher than the goal at the bottom. You know? <laughs> And we had like a white ball and a ball with paint peeling off. And then we had this orange ball. And I was just like, you just think, oh, what on earth have I landed myself in here, you know? But the lads were brilliant. And I think, you know, I, I met with Nicky Law just before lockdown last year. And we were saying if it wasn't for the lads, because training wasn't brilliant. We didn't have any facilities. But if it wasn't for the lads, you know, the, 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 the team would have crumbled, you know? And, and when I talk about that... John and Kevin were in that, you know what I mean? That hope, do you know what I mean? And we were such, we were just such a close knit. The trainer was awful. We hated it, but we were just structured. We were just well organised, um, and we had we had Kev Davies as an outlet, which we just used for probably the best part of two years, and nobody really cottoned on to it, and you know so. <laughs> and two minutes after half time, Tony Lorman made it two 0 with a brilliant twenty five yarder. The ball didn't touch the ground. The celebration did. And you scored a you scored a great goal against Walsall, which is still on uh, which is still on YouTube, and has a, has a great again a great celebration at the end of it. Um, but well, what were your favourite goals that that kind of season during that run? Well, obviously that it, and it's games of importance, really. Um, I always remember. I think we played Darlington away. I think we won 1-0 at Darlington away, and I'm sure it must have been Easter weekend, so I'm sure it was a Monday afternoon. And I think it was like a clearance. And I remember just being, it was just this fight ball with the centre-half and goalkeeper, and the three of us came together at the edge of the box. And I just remember getting me big toe on it. And it went in, it dribbled in. Um, now, in, in the scheme of things, it, it's a forgettable goal, but... At that time, it kept us on the run. You know, what I mean? it kept us in in the in the pack, um, and it was such an important game uh, and an important goal. Um, obviously, the goal at, at Walsall, we were chasing Walsall to get in, in this in the third. The story behind, and this is a true story, is um, the Walsall goal. Uh, well, in fact, funny enough, we travelled down in the morning of the game of Walsall, and I always remember there was about four or five of us all had flu. And we were in a, we were like a patched up team to be honest. And then um, so the goal against Walsall, obviously John Howard came in. I think he only came in the week before, 
he was playing for couldn't get game for Rotherham's reserves, and now all of a sudden he was. You know, I think, I think he gets the first goal. Well, he gets he got the third goal, but um, but my, I mean, my goal came in and I miscontrolled it, and it was like a muddy, bobbly pitch, and I, I went to control it. It went over me foot, so obviously it, it, it wrong foot of their defender, and I used to never shoot from that range, and I, it was just one of their moments. I just thought I'm hitting this, you know. I mean, I think I was frustrated. I miscontrol it, and I thought I wellied it really, and and then the celebration, you know, it was there funny because I, again, when you remember things, I remember sliding on my tummy, and then I remember thinking, there's a there was a concrete concrete like edge to the uh, at the end of the pitch, and I just thought, oh my god, I'm not stopping, you know. <laughs> I just see, see myself heading for this concrete uh, thing, and eventually I just stopped in time. But you know, it was such a big game for us, really, you know. Um, we put everything into it. There's a there's a little bit of needle between us and Walsall and stuff like that. So, um, and then must that must have been like from the from the first game this early in the season. But so yeah, we I mean that, that's that's how that goal came about. Yeah, and then it it didn't lose until Carlisle, which is kind of funny really because it ended up being David Reeves who mm. uh, kind of came when when you went and he scored the goals in that match, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, a, it was a funny night all around because I don't even remember, I missed the penalty. And um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously we knew Reeves, Carlisle were flying, I think Carlisle were top, they won the league and Reeves, he's got a lot of goals. So, um, and I th- by this time, we were t- obviously we, we, were t- we needed to win, I think. We needed to win to give us a chance going in the last game of the season to, to pip. Um, to pit Walsall and then um, so I got down I got brought down for the penalty with about 10 minutes to go and I remember falling on the ball and picking it up now the week before I'd scored a penalty um, so I picked it up and walked to the spot and Nicky Law came up to us and said oh, I'll take it and I was like and I remember saying to him oh no I'll be fine and I, I thought well, why why is the centre half want to take a penalty you know so um he just said, and, give, and he just said, all right, yeah, fine, you take it, you know. So I remember taking it and obviously missed it, or the keeper saved it, and it went out for a corner. And even before the corner was taken, I was subbed, John took me off. And I sat next to him and he just went, he just went, so he just said, saying, you don't take penalties, you won't be taking any more penalties. And I was like, well, I'm sitting there forward, you know, and, and I went, oh, well, fair enough. And what I didn't realise was Nicky took penalties for like the last five years. <laughs> never missed one. He never missed one in his life. And what had happened was the week before, Nicky was injured. Nicky had been saved for that game, you see, or the Saturday before. So I never realised the penalties. Uh, and then obviously... The, the, so, so at the end of the game, we were, we were devastated, really, because we knew a chance of going straight up. We lost. Um, so that was a Tuesday night. We came in on the Thursday, and we trained. And John sat John sat me down and just said, "Like, look, Nicky takes penalties. You know, he always has done." I says, "I never knew nothing about it." You know, and John says, "Well, look, I just don't. I don't want you taking any more penalties." So I went, "Well, fair enough." So then Saturday comes around. We had Colchester at home, and um, so we knew we were in the playoffs. Bit of a dead rubber to a certain extent. Three minutes in the game, big man gets brought down for a penalty. So Nicky wasn't playing because obviously he was being saved for the Mansfield match. Well, the, at the time it was the playoffs, so we thought it was going to be Mansfield. 
And I didn't even look at John. I just picked the ball up and I thought, I've got to take it. It's sort of like redemption, you know. I mean, if I never take this penalty, then I'll worry about the rest of my life. Um, and I just, I ran up and just smashed it as hard as I possibly could. And I even miskicked it. It goes straight in the bottom corner. It looks a great penalty. But it was actually a miskick. And, um, and funny enough, I, I took penalties after that for Chesterfield, after, after you know, if Nicky wasn't about. And all the other clubs I played at. And that night at Carlisle was the only penalty I missed in 16 years. And did, did John Duncan say anything after, after you'd scored that penalty or not? At Colchester? Yeah. No, he never said that. He, did, he didn't substitute me. I didn't look over. <laughs> I just ran about the half time, uh, the half halfway line with my back to him. I wouldn't look across. And he never said anything. And I think he was a centre forward, you know, and I think he just knows as a centre forward, you want to score goals and you want to be involved in games. Like I spoke even when I was a kid, you know. Mm-hmm. And he probably knew it was redemption, you know, just to, to clear, you know, any thoughts. Because, you know, I, I, you know, in the rest of my life, I was going to take a penalty, but you know, um, so yeah, it was just something to get out of my head and stuff like that. And, and then obviously that leads us into the Mansfield match. Yeah, and then uh, it, it, I mean, it, losing the Carl, the Carl Hour game in hindsight is <laughs> was a good thing to do. <laughs> well, it, it's funny. I see. I've done a couple of talks with it then I said with with the club, you know, and I've sort of said, you know, missing that penalty was probably. The, from my personal point of view, you know, I mean, because everybody, bar the FA Cup uh, semi-final games, everyone talks, we'll talk about the, the Wembley goal, you know, on the Wembley day, the goal against Mansfield. Um, so, yeah, from my personal point of view, it was, it was the best ending that could have happened, really, because, you know, missing the penalty at Carlisle and then we didn't get promoted would have been, um, you know, a, I would have had egg in my face for quite a long time after that. Yeah. And I, I, I read somewhere where you said that the uh, playoff final game was probably the worst game you ever mm. played. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was awful. Um, I, I remember. So what we did was, obviously, we get, we get through. And, uh, John Duncan was, was meticulous in how he wanted to do things, you know. So he said, right, this is what we're going to do. We either... If we, if we stay overnight, we stay for two nights or we go down the morning of the game. And he had this theory, which I think a lot of people do now, is um, one night in a hotel doesn't do you any good, really. So he either said, we'll go down for a couple of days or we'll go the morning of the match, you know. So, so obviously the senior players had said, we'll go down for two days. And then um, um, and we went... The day before we went to Wembley to have a look around, so we were in starstruck and stuff like that. So, um, so we, we 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 prepped for it unbelievably well, and then we started off and Berry were were brilliant. Do you know what I mean? The first 20, 25 minutes, um, and I just I, I couldn't get hold of the ball. Um, it kept, every time it came up, it kept coming back, and I remember we had we had a corner of a free kick, and Nicky 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 coming up for the corner, I think it was. And he went, is there any chance you can just keep hold of the ball for five minutes? He says, I mean, they were, they were peppering us. And then um, and I just and I just tried and tried, tried, and every time it either bounced off us or I lost the header. And, and, then, um, and then obviously we got the two quick goals, which sort of settled us down. And I probably took the wind out of the sails for, of Berry. And I think if you look at chances at the end, we could have won by four or five nil. Um, so, yeah, it was... 
it was really strange. The lead up to the game, I was I was nervous. That was probably the nervous I've ever been for a match. Be only because I think we had a squad of fourteen, maybe sixteen, and I think ten of ten of the players were out of contract. So there was a lot riding on that one game. Yeah. And and then you've got things like playing at Wembley. Um, you know, ultimately, it's a game you've got to win. Uh, careers and livelihoods are on the line. You know, and I didn't. I enjoyed. I enjoyed the final whistle. Uh, I looked. I've seen something that yeah, I played probably the best part of 75, 80 minutes. And honestly, I just remember being awful. You know, and I just thought uh, I was just fortunate. Even the goal itself. Do you know what I mean? It sort of. It wasn't a great strike, but. It was a half volley with my left foot. It could have gone anywhere. Uh, Robbo could have been offside. and There was lots and lots of things around it. And ultimately, the, the gods were looking down on me that day. Yeah. Nine months' work depends on 90 minutes against Berry in the third division playoff final. Nicky Law. It is long. There's Morris. And here's a goal, maybe. Yes! Chesterfield score! Marvellous moment! Chesterfield take the lead from that ploy that has worked so often. Lorma gets the goal, Chesterfield arms raised in salute, and Nicky Law's throw-in leads to the breakthrough for Chesterfield. And he receives the trophy and his own personal medal from Mike Naylor, Managing Director of Ensley Insurance. Chesterfield are promoted to Division 2. And then when you get back into the dressing room then, are you just thinking, is it just relief? You're just thinking. Yeah, it was massive <laughs> relief. And then I remember someone saying, oh, referees, give Robbo the first goal. And I remember, I remember going in and going straight up the referees' room and saying, making sure, you know, I'd got the first goal, really. I remember sat outside the referee's office, I'd knocked on his door. Mm. Um, and then um, and then we went down, obviously downstairs, and it, it, was, it was chaos, but a good chaos, you know, and everyone was going mad, and we had a few drinks and all that. And, and then, um, what was it? And I remember Norton Lee came in, and he said, right, this is our take, he's on holiday, you can go anywhere in the world. And I went, Barbados. And he went, right. And 10 years later, we sat in Barbados. Do you know what I mean? So, um, so yeah, it was a brilliant time. You know, it was a fantastic time. And the next season, you played, you were virtually ever-present, weren't you? Season after, mm. I think, in like 95, 96 season. Like 41 games, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, we did, um, what was it? We did okay. We went up and held our own, you know. Mm. Um, and I think at that time, what would it be, League 2 and League 3, I think it was at the time. There wasn't a lot between it, you know. I think the, the, the top two or three teams spent a lot of money and everybody else was much of a muchness. And we didn't have a big budget. I think we brought in Billy Mercer and Paul Holland, I think it was, and just to bring a bit of quality, I think, to take us to the next level. And again, we just we just gelled and it, it, was, it was good. I thoroughly enjoyed it, you know. Which um, which players were the ones that felt that uh, did you feel that were on your wavelength in terms of how you played? Were the were the players that you just felt like you had a bit of an instinctive connection with on the pitch? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing was we had an we had an incredibly simple plan, um, 
So we had him. So all I'd do is I'd get it and stick it in behind for Kev. Honestly, that was literally it. Um, um, and uh, so yeah, I, I got on really well with Kev. In fact, I got on, got on well with everybody. To be honest, that there was nobody in the squad that I, I can't remember not getting on with. They might think differently. <laughs> I seemed to get on it with everybody. Um, what was it? We just had a team. I loved everybody. It was fantastic, you know. We just had such a work ethic, you know. Well, I was called that. We were, we were a team of misfits, you know. Really, I hadn't done well at previous clubs, and we came together, and we just gelled, and we just got on with it. And um, you know, everybody was brilliant, you know. Mm. I, I couldn't single anybody out because. You know, everybody talks about obviously me and Robbo signing at the same time and the goals he got and the goals that I got. Um, but I was, we were never, I was never close to Robbo, but Robbo was never close to everybody, you know. And he, he sort of, he, he was doing a, um, a physio's degree, you know. So tw- Thursdays and Tuesdays he'd, be, he'd finish training, he'd be off in Salford, you know. And, um, but he was, it was never nasty. It was just like he, he had that, that was his goal. That's what he wanted to do, you know. Yeah. Um, I miss the share share room with Sean. Um, he was brilliant. Do you know what I mean? Really got on with Sean's sense of humour. Really got on well with him. Uh, Daz Carr um, really respected Nicky for what he did and how he was doing things. A leader, a winner. You know. So, so yeah, it was it was, it was a there were, there were some really really good guys there. Angled away from his own defender, and Tony Lorma. Tony Lorma still going on 2 0. And Lorma has his seventh goal of the season, and it may be good enough. Chesterfield 2 up with less than a quarter of an hour to play. He's a gangling striker, Tony Lorma. Looks awkward at times, but he's done enough here to take Chesterfield through now for sure. 2 0. And then if we go on to the FA Cup run, you you scored in one of the early rounds, didn't you? Was it mm. Scarborough? I think. And I think I think that was the game we won two 0 um, So yeah, so I played the first three rounds, and then and then I just started picking up a couple of injuries. Really, um, I was injured. I was injured, and then came back for the Berry match, the big brawl. Um, we finished with nine men and it was dead funny at the end of the game John came in he said I thought I looked tired and would I play for the reserves during the week and I went well you're the gaffer if you want me to play I'll play you know but we played 20 minutes with nine men you know Um, so I played it was dead funny I played against Doncaster reserves and um, I scored two goals in the first first 20-30 minutes absolutely flying you know you're full of confidence and then um and i went in for a, a challenge and jumped over the tackle and as i landed my ankle went underneath us and um i mean I, the pain was was horrific but so I'd, I'd obviously done the ligaments in my ankle um and then i then you see i think the, the forest game was coming up i think you know and i was like oh, i can't remember what it was now i was sub for forest but whatever it was, I just knew that, you know, that was going to be out for a while. And I remember seeing a surgeon and he basically said you would have been better breaking your ankle than actually doing what he did to your ligaments, you know. So I knew it was pretty bad and stuff like that. And, um, and then I was dipping in and out of the team. And um, and I remember training 
just we, we trained in Manchester. I think we trained at Manu's old training ground before the um, before the semi final. And I remember limping, and I thought, well, I may get stuck on the bench, you know. Um, and John named the team and the subs the, the day before, and I wasn't in them. Um, and he was really good and gracious. He came over and had a chat with us. And John made some decisions, which you you looked at and would think, why has he done that, you know? But they always they always worked, you know. Yeah. And he says to us, he says, look, he says, I'm putting Dad's car on on the bench. He said, if it gets late on, I can chuck Dad's on up front. He's more aggressive than you, and um, that that's the reason, only reason. And obviously, you're not fully you're not fully fit. So I know I was good, but obviously I, I could understand it. Was it was it an enjoyable game to watch? Oh. I loved every minute of it. As a as a fan, as a football fan, the what, what, what John did really well. The, the disappointment in being of not being substituted the day before got you got out of your system. So you walk up, and we're a team, you know. What I mean, we're a squad. You do things together, and I looked at was I my moment was was Wembley. Do you know what I mean? That was my moment, you know, um, and it was. Somebody else's turn, you know, and you know, and I just thought, well, be a man, be gracious, you know what I mean. The team, and I just remember celebrating every goal. And I, um, when Sean scored the penalty, I remember looking at the, you know, the scoreboard, and we were, you know, you just looking, you think, yeah, we're two 0 in the semi final of the FA Cup, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was a fantastic experience. I mean, on the bus to the ground, you know, people seeing people on the streets and. And then getting into Old Trafford and being best part of full and you know, Chesterfield having half the ground it was just the noise. You know, I mean, as I remember walking down, I remember walking down the touchline. I was almost in tears. It was brilliant. You know, the, the whole atmosphere was fantastic. Yeah, and uh, and 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 when you're like not in the team or on the bench, do you um, are you still like part of it in the dressing room, or do you kind of pull yourself back a bit and? Yeah, I think you know everybody gets in there at the beginning, and then there comes a time when people start to get changed, and then obviously you would go out for a warm up about forty minutes for the game. So from my point of view, you know, I mean, once the team talks and once the once people start getting changed, you get out. You know, what I mean, you let the you let the lads do their bit really. Um, so yeah, I can't remember where I was. I probably just lingered around, probably for an hour before kickoff, save at the. The atmosphere, the noise, um, made sure I had a, a place to sit in, in the dugout. Yeah. There, was a, there was a few of us. Um, so yeah, and 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 things like I mean, we we'll played Middlesbrough, you know, who were you know what was the Premier League team at the time, and I remember people like uh, Brian Robson, and, and you know, um, who was a he- one of the heroes of me growing up. You know, I mean, you, so you look for glimpses of people and who uh, and stuff like that. So, so he just he just he just sort of took everything in. Yeah. And then it was the the season after that you left, wasn't it? And not yeah. a, lot of, a lot of players left at that time anyway, because they got moves elsewhere and things mm. on the back of the cup run. Um but then it was a you handed in a transfer request, didn't you? Right. Yeah. So I knew you cook there were there was bits and bobs where you just thought yeah, I'm being phased out. And one of the things was, I remember, um, so I said, I used to play midfield now and then. 
Um, and then we had a game at York, and he played me right-hand side in midfield. And I just remember thinking, thinking, why is this, you know? And we'd had, we'd had discussions about why he wasn't playing up front, and I could understand why that was. Um, and then he, I just felt my time was up, do you know what I mean? And I thought there was... Um, I just thought it was, it was time for a change, do you know what I mean? Um, and I just felt, if I put transfer, I hadn't, I knew nothing about the Preston um, thing. I just thought fancy to change. And if I put me word, put it out there, I, I wanted to love somebody, somebody might come in, you know? And that was, I never had an agent, do you know what I mean? I did everything myself. Um, I just thought, well, let, let's try and see, you know? And I was probably, I think there was a, probably a bit of a hangover after the after the cup run, you know, there's people who, and I was probably one of them who felt I nose was pushed out a little bit. Um, but I, I just felt it was time for a change, you know, and, and uh, I was never going to be a right winger. <laughs> so, uh, so I just thought, well, let's see what happens, you know, and again, um, I think we played Preston a couple of weeks before. And I, and, I, and I think I scored up there and, and I played really well at home against them. And then the next thing well, I got a phone call and it was like fancy coming up and this, that and other. And I thought, well, yeah, you know, and obviously the thing with Reevesy, it worked out well where they wanted a shot of Reevesy and probably John fancied, Re- I don't know, obviously Reevesy was was high on John's list and it, fit, it fitted us both having probably a change. And... Um, but going going to Preston was I thought was was going to be everything because they were always known as a big club, um, and um, and then you get there and it, it just it just fell flat in its face. You know what I mean? I could have I could have really. I think the first two weeks was good. The euphoria of mainly debut I scored, uh, I scored a couple of goals at South End, and then after that I was just um, just a massive in just a massive downhill experience, you know, and um, I never settled in the city or the town. Um, um, what was it? There was a, there was, it was really strange. There was a massive divide in the club. Half the team lived in Manchester, half the other team lived in Preston and they didn't really get on. And um, So yeah, and then sort of the manager that signed me, he got the sack, but David Moyes was, was like a coach and a player um, and there was there was lots going on. It was really strange. The manager accused David of getting him the sack, and you know, was, we played at Grimsby once, and there was a massive fight in the tunnel, and it was all the players, the manager, the coaching staff, it was all Preston players and staff fighting with each other. Usually, it's, it's, it's with the opposition, and it was just like everything just built up, and it just went back. Yeah, and then I suppose you didn't. You kind of went to a, a few clubs, didn't you? Probably Mansfield. Probably where you had your most most games, was it after Chesterfield? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was weird because I bumped into um, I bumped into their manager. Might have been at a game, and he said something about, "Oh, we, we, would you fancy coming down and this, that, and other?" And he was like, "We can't afford your wages, but we can afford this, that, and other." And we still had the house in Lincoln, and I said, "Well, I can afford to move back, you know." And I just, if you want, I'll come back and play, sort of thing. And, and that's how that happened, really. So I had two full seasons at Mansfield, and then the third pre-season, we had a, a final pre-season match at Nats County. 
So I drove back from Notts County ground to where I lived in Lincoln. And I got back to Lincoln and um, my wife at the time, she said, um, oh, um, Billy the Evans run, can you, can you ring him back? And I says, yeah, I'll give him a ring. And so I rang him up in that conversation and he went, oh, just like, no chairman sold you. And I went, all oh, right. He says, uh, Harley pulled put a bid in, so he's accepted it. So this was like Saturday night. And then, um, so Harley Pool rang us and just said, like, do you want to come for Sunday night? We'll have a meeting Monday morning and see what you want to do. And that's, that's how football worked, or how football worked in them days, you know? So, um, so I played for Chess, uh, played for Mansfield on the Saturday afternoon, Monday morning, I signed for Harley Pool. So, because. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like uh, I think anyone in any other business if mm. if, if another uh, identical business to yours just said alright you're working in Swansea now yeah, you'd just be like what I'm not I've got a house and I've got a family <laughs> and, yeah. and everything else but football is is one weird business isn't it sometimes uh, yeah I've said this loads of times it's the only must be the only business where there's no logic you know what I mean? It's just fly by the seat of your pants, you know. Uh, back then it was, you know, it was, it's probably not much, not much better now if you look at some of the clubs. But yeah, it, 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 it's a business without a business plan. It's a business with successful business people who don't apply their bus- what they were applying to their own business into a football club. You know, yeah. I'm, an, I'm, I'm, I'm a Newcastle fan, you know what I mean? And you look at like how Newcastle is run by by a billionaire, you know what I mean? It's, it's bonkers, do you know what I mean? There's, there's no logic to anything, really. Hi, everyone. Uh, producer Dave here. Uh, I just wanted to put in a quick uh, warning here as, as now we go on to the part where Tony talks about his uh, battles with alcoholism uh, and also fighting cancer as well. So if those are issues that uh, affect you, um, then I just wanted to put in that quick warning now. Thanks. And one thing that's come up uh, quite often as well, speaking to players, is that transition out of being a footballer to mm. you're not a footballer anymore. You know, we had Paul Hall on who said that he could only describe it as coming out of prison after 20 years and suddenly you're, you've like got no skills and yeah. you've got no job and, um, and you just don't know what to do next. And you're still quite young as well. And we've had other players that have had really bad injuries that have had to kind of... Yeah rehabilitate themselves to some degree um and you kind of had you kind of struggles as well didn't you kind of yeah finish playing yeah it was it was it was massive really because i i signed for hartlepool at the beginning of the season and i and i knew obviously i wasn't borrowed time with my knee in every club i was at i never had a i never had a medical because i would have failed it through my, my knee and every every club sort of knew that so <clears throat> I started with Hartlepool, big in the season. And by the end of October, I was in hospital with my knee. And I knew my knee was crum- my knee was literally crumbling away. So I couldn't train and I couldn't play. I couldn't do the book, two things. So um, I, could only, uh, I could only train certain days. If we played on a like, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, I wouldn't train. You know what I mean? Um, so I knew my career was coming to an end then. Um, and when, when I was in Hartlepool, I, I, turned, I turned alcohol, really. You know what I mean? I was living in a guest house. I was commuting to, from Lincoln to Hartlepool. Um, and, yeah, so I just dived into a pint pot, really. And really, like, 
when that day, you know, that when that day finally comes, you know, was was horrific, you know. And then I, I signed for Telford, and I, my heart wasn't in it. Um, and then I played locally, um, and you know, I was just, I was a mess, really. Do you know, what I mean? overweight, unfit. Um, you know, I mean, a drunk. It was just, um, it was just a, a really tough time, you know. And I ended up, you know, people to a certain extent take pity on you. And this, don't know how it came about. I met a guy who was a football fan in Nottingham, and he sort of said, "I've run a window company. Do you want to sell some windows for us?" And I went, "Yeah, I'll do that." And I became a double glazing salesman for two or three years, and and then ultimately went from sales job to sales job and. My dad was in sales and he was like, you know, you can earn some good money in that. But um, the, only, the, only, the only time I really felt settled was um, I got the commercial manager's job at Chest, uh, in Mansfield. Mm-hmm. And I, I was going along okay. I enjoyed it. It was something I really did enjoy. And then the club got relegated at a football league. So we all got made, you know, we all got sacked really. And then I went across and worked for Derby County. And they'd just been taken over by an American consortium. And how they did things, I just absolutely loved. And all I was doing was selling tickets. And I was selling tickets to the young football teams. Um, and it was brilliant, to be honest. Absolutely loved it. Did it, for, did it for a year or one season. And then we came into the second season flying along. I'd been there about 18 months. I was doing really well. Um, and then I got a phone call. And it was my mum when she said... Um, that she'd been diagnosed with cancer and that just sort of that just flipped my world upside down again and it was back to the drink and it, I got to the point where um, it, Darby got me in and just said like you know we're gonna we're gonna have to let you go so you know we'll, we'll give you your notice and we'll give you a reference but we can't have you here anymore and uh, and that was that was sort of the next lot of you know, me spiraled out of control, to be honest. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so for, for a very, very long time, I was uh, from football finishing until I talk about, I did an interview once and getting diagnosed with cancer was the best thing that could ever happen to us because it gave me a kick on the backside and it gave me a focus. And that was when I was kit man at Chesterfield, you know. Um, so up until up until I joined Chesterfield, I was I was I'd been living in Nottingham. I was living in Newcastle, you know, and I was still just in the best part of a functioning alcoholic, you know. And, um, and then when when my mum passed away, that was just that the drinking just went to another level, really. And how it all <laughs> how it all happens is um, I spewed the line in my stomach up. Do you mean I got that bad? Um, I remember being stood in the shower and just blood everywhere. And um, I just thought, I've got to change. Do you know what I mean? I've got to make a change or I'll die. This will kill me, you know. Um, and from that, I sat down and knew what I had to do. I was on antidepressants and all sorts. So um, I just said, right, I've got to stop this. I've got to change my life. What, what, you know, I had children that lived in Lincoln and Darby. And Darby. And I was living in Newcastle, so I was like, right, let's move back. Who do I know? How can I get a job back in that area? Uh, Chris Turner was my manager, Harley Bull. I rang him up and just said, like, have you got any jobs? You know, and he, and he rang me back and he said, do you fancy being kit man? And I went, yeah, let's do it, you know. He says, oh, you've got to meet Paul. Um, 
some poles just came in. And then, uh, now the funny thing was, when I was 17, right, 18, when I was at Newcastle, I went on loan to Norwich and played in the reserves for whatever reason. I have no idea why I went on loan to Norwich, but Paul was the centre midfield player for Norwich reserves. And obviously he was in that first team and I got on really well with him. And that, that was the next time I met him really after leaving Norwich was like a sort of interview stroke chat about um, being called Kim. <laughs> and and it was, a, it was a fantastic 12 months. You know what I mean? I loved everything he did, how he set up training and the team and the club was just, um, was just brilliant. Completely different from how everybody else was doing it. I was, talking to a, I was talking to another Chesterfield fan the other day and we were saying how it's amazing when you get a manager that doesn't just pick a team up, but they pick a whole staff of a club up from, you know, yeah. your office staff to your stewards to your fans. Oh. When you get the right man in, it kind of picks everyone up, doesn't it? And Cook was a perfect example of that. Yeah, yeah, honestly he was. He involved everybody. I remember we used to have team meetings on a Monday morning and all staff will be in it. And I always remember we played in we played Mansfield in a, what's now the AFL Trophy, and we, we had Mansfield away and we had a meeting just before we went, and he said he was like he he didn't know whether to play um, oh gosh Hurdy right back or, or in centre half do you know what I mean? And then there was another lad he was like who's the centre half? He said I wasn't sure what to do. He asked me opinion. Do you know what I mean? And he said he says what do you think? What do you think? And I, and I said, well, what about it? No, I mean, he didn't listen to it. He did. <laughs> but he had that, you know what I mean? He involved everybody in the decisions and he had, he gave everybody a voice. Um, and I know you, you go on about it. But Paul, Paul had one or two things, you know what I mean, off the field, which, you know, didn't help. But I mean, as like, fo- as around football in the club, it was just brilliant. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely brilliant. Um. And 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 that that twelve months was um, was was probably the most enjoyable job I've had, you know. And I, and I mean, when I when I said I would take the job, I was on twelve grand a year, you know. I was probably what was that about in my early forties, and I was on twelve grand a year, you know. And it was just, but it was just what I needed at the time. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I just needed something to do. I used to go in for seven o'clock in the morning and I would leave at five, six o'clock at night. Um, you know, because I, so I could just focus on that job, you know. And, um, and even, it was really strange because even in the early parts of that, like the pre-season stuff, I was still drinking ridiculous. And it wasn't until um, I found that lump, like in, in the August, I found a lump on my neck and that sort of just changed everything, you know. And it was by this from from the August. I finally got diagnosed in the December, um, and that just sort of changed changed everything. Do you know what I mean? I, I didn't, but I never realised how serious it was or could have been. So. Yeah, and you've been you've been really um, you've been really brilliant and really honest in like the blogs that you've done and mm. and the interviews that you've done before because you've had. Um, You've kind of beaten cancer a few times, haven't you? Um, yeah. Um, and it's, uh, what four times now? Is it? Uh, I've lost count now. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, what? I mean, can you like articulate your thoughts of, of what what it was like that first time that you were diagnosed? 
Yeah, I had no symptoms. I hadn't been ill. I had a lump on my neck. Um, even like even through the process of, of, of like everything I went through, the biopsies. I had a, I had the biopsy, and I said they said you'll get a phone call in two weeks to get your results. Four weeks later, I still hadn't heard anything. So just like oh well, I'll just get on with stuff. And not long after that, I got a phone call. Um, actually, went up with my training kit. That's how blase I was about it, and uh, walked in the room, and he just went, "You've got cancer." So I just thought, <clears throat> obviously, I lost my mum, and I think that <clears throat> when anybody's diagnosed with that, what I found out is the first thing you think of is like, "When am I going to die?" You know what I mean? How long is it going to take me to die? You know, and I was no different. That was the first thing that went through my head. Um, and I remember coming outside. Um, I tried to ring my dad. I couldn't get hold of my dad, so I rang my brother. And I cried down the phone to my brother. And I just thought, right, I was all, my whole life had all been about plans and, and goals and stuff like that. And that's probably, you know, like from the footballing days, you know, I, somebody mentioned something about, I think it was Paul Hall about being in prison. I used to say it was like being in the army. We were very, very just regimented, told what to do, where to go, how to do it. You know, tomorrow you'll do exactly the same. You'll do what I tell you to do. Um. And that was, and I remember, right, and I remember thinking, I need a plan, and I need to know what's happening, because I need to beat it, do you know what I mean? I turned it into a big challenge, um, and I just thought, oh, it's not going to be, it's not going to be this. I didn't, I didn't Google anything about lymphoma or nothing, I just sort of went, you know, just put my hands into the, ex, in my, hand, my hands into the, you know, the, the experts, and sort of went, just get on with it, really. Yeah. Um, and that's what I did, do you know what I mean? And Go for radiotherapy. So I went for radiotherapy and you just go, it went quite quickly, you know, and it was, it was like, right, I've done it, I've beat it, you know, and I was, I was clear for four years. Um, now, if you get a five years, that that's like, you can say you've never had cancer, you see. So I got a four years and obviously then it came back. So it was, um, and every time really, it just seen as a bit of a challenge. I had it in my mouth, I had nothing, another lump on my neck um, when it when it comes back they do a thing called wait and see you know what I mean so you just you just wait and I always remember the, the, the consultant she just said it's the size of a pay at the minute if it gets the size of a satsuma then you know we need to do something about it and it was over the Christmas in the new year and we came remember waking up and it was just getting bigger you know and um, so they gave me another load of radiotherapy that got rid of it. I was told that I was given the all clear. And then um and then it just it just it just came back massive really. And that was when it came back like huge in my neck and it came back in my stomach as well. Um and I was in a lot of pain with that. It was, it was you know it was, it was painful in my stomach. I wasn't eating and I was you know passing blood and stuff like that. So I knew something wasn't right. And then um and I, I mean, the staff at the Chesterfield Hospital, I just kind of thank enough, you know, um, the consultant. What happened was the consultant seen me on a Thursday and he said, he basically said, we're going to start chemo on Monday. I have no results of what you got, but you're in, I'm that concerned. I want to start chemo on Monday. Um, and if he hadn't have done that and waited for results, I probably I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have definitely wouldn't have made it. Um, 
and it was just it was just things I had, you know. Um, the people on the ward were brilliant, you know. Uh, I always talk about the nurses on Hasland Ward, um, and the, and the ladies and nurses in the hematology department. You know, I still keep in touch with them today. I mean, I'm still back every every eight weeks to see them, but it was um, it was a massive. It was just a massive. I wouldn't say a worrying time. I was never worried until I had to go to Sheffield. And once I went to Sheffield, Hallamshire, and said you needed a stem cell transplant, that was the first time I sort of went, oh, I'm in the, you know, I'm in the class now. I'm in, this is not a really good place. And ultimately I spent four or five months in hospital at Chesterfield and I had various lots of chemo, but none of it could keep it under, under control. And it was, um, it was very much, um, when I went to Sheffield, it was like, oh God, this is quite serious now. So, um, and it was quite funny. I was speaking to a nurse the other day. I went in for me a jab. And we're talking about stem cell transplants. It's stem cell transplant was the only side effects I ever had of all my treatment. Um, and she said, yes, she says a stem cell transplant takes everything and then takes more. Um, and that was, I had, I had 14 days in isolation in Sheffield. And that was, that, that, that broke me, to be honest. You know, I, I'd given up halfway through that. You know, I, was quite, I was quite happy to throw in the towel. And, you know, but, I mean, I've been told I'm, I'm stubborn. You know what I mean? And I love a challenge. Um, and a lot, of play, a lot of footballers will always be, you know, if you, someone tells you you can't do it, you know, you'll prove them wrong. And, and I think that's the attitude I took, you know. Um, and I did an interview once when I said, like, I wasn't scared of dying. And I think the biggest thing I did was I just sort of, like, released everything. You know I mean? I didn't fight it. I just sort of, like, went. Um, I'd say, well, I, I've had a good innings, you know. And if it ends, it ends, you know. But, you know, let's, you know, get on with it and see, see what path it leads to, you know. Yeah. Well, and you can see from, like, when you were talking about taking that penalty after being told not to take him <laughs> again. Uh, there's, there's kind of uh, uh, an attitude and a stubbornness there that you can see um, uh, that you can see in, in, your, in your writing and your blogs and your interviews that you've done uh, oh. recently. And how, how do you um, kind of keep, keep positive or keep, keep going when you keep getting setbacks and things like that was there a was there a, a a way or a or a method that you had in just keeping, keeping positive <laughs> don't know if it, it was weird i've got um i played, <clears throat> played with a guy um called uh, graham lane his, his wife was told she had um 12 months to live with a brain tumor and she she asked me the same question um and I gave her an answer, which I don't know whether you, you, you may have to bleep it out, but I just went, don't give a shit. Do you know what I mean? And I mean that in the, the right way. It was, and that's when I said, I sort of like, I, I, stopped, I stopped fighting it. But I allowed the process to, I fought, I fought to, you know, to do everything I was asked of it. But I didn't fight the, the system or the process, you know what I mean? If I, if I was told I had to go here, I have to do it. I'd do it, do you know what I mean? And sort of let, I mean, I'm not spiritual at all, do you know what I mean? But I just thought, well, 
you know, you put your hands in somebody and, you know, I mean, I, I put a blog out the other day and I put things happen for a reason, you know. Mm. Um, and, I, and, I, and I believe that, you know. And, I mean, I came really close to not being here. And then you just cherish every day. Do you know what I mean? And when I got the all clear, it's weird because you're in this, I'm in this bubble fighting or going through what I'm going through. And you don't really realize what's going on around you. And then all of a sudden you get all clear. And then you just look at the, the collateral damage around you. And I mean that like, with Mel, my partner, uh, my kids, do you know what I mean? Friends and family. Um, what they've been through and and you have to you do it for them you know you do it for your love of it you know do it for the love of Mel and the um of my kids you know and my friends and my family and I have an opportunity to do something with my life you know that's why I started Brightside you know there was I found there was a little very little there was a gap in the market where I felt there was wasn't support to a certain extent um and that I set that up just I never wanted, I was at home like for three months and I, I felt I didn't have anyone to reach out to to talk about cancer. Uh, and that was the only reason I really set Brightside up was just to say, if you're sat at home and you're quite not sure and, um, you know, who to talk to or where to go or what support group, I thought, well, look, at, I tried to make it as easy as possible for someone to get in touch with us. And that was... Um, and that's why I set it up. You know, you can text me, you can get to the helpline, you can email me, you know, um, and then that's where that all grew from, you know, and it's not, this is not to make money, do you know what I mean? This is not to try and scam people out of, you know, <laughs> the hard on me. This is something I just want to help, you know, and um, and, and, and that's and that's where it, it grew from, to be honest. That's, I just felt I was given an opportunity to do something and I want to do something with my life, really. Yeah, and tell us what the website is. So it's brightsidecic.org, and so it's B-R-I-T-E-S-I-D-E-C-I-C.org. And and there's obviously the stuff on there. I'm on Facebook. I have a Facebook group. I'm on Twitter. Um, It was really funny. I launched it, and then I had a message about 10 o'clock at night by a guy who, who, who basically, it was 10 o'clock and he sent me a message to Facebook and just said, I start treatment next week. I'm terrified, you know, uh, I'm terrified. You got any tips? We had a conversation. We still, we still, still in touch today, you know. Um, he's going through, you know, his, his treatment. And that's what I wanted it to be, you know. Um, you know, there's, 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 a, there's, you know, there's somebody else who um, has gone through something you know, something similar as diagnosis, then had to wait four weeks to find out the results. And those four weeks, they, they, they'll kill you as much as the treatment, you know, and the worry, you know, of what might happen, what could happen, and this, that, and other. So, um, so yeah, that, that, you know, I just thought, well, if I, if I could help, if I could help, and it was a bit like the blog, really, if I could help one person, then it was worthwhile, and, um, that's 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 why it was all set up to be honest yeah and there's there's two sides of it really isn't there because i mean most people know someone that's had cancer um mm. and and there's as much as of the the people that that the family or the friends that are around and how how do you act or <laughs> stuff. And, and it's yeah 
it's I don't know from from your position of um, obviously being di diagnosed before is the and it's obviously different for, for different people. But there, is there a way that you'd like people to kind of treat you or act act towards you? <laughs> Talk about it honestly, and it's 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 really strange to see about. And I know everybody's different because some people wait. I must bury the head in the sand, but you just don't want to talk about it, you know. Um, and we did some support groups before lockdown through the hospital at Chesterfield, um, and you could see that there was a mix. There was a mix of people, you know. People just you know, terrified, you know. Some people. There was a lady there who was terminally ill, um, life and soul of, of the meetings, you know. What I mean, um, from my point of view, I think just talking about it, you know. I think. Um, because, I mean, that, that it's the elephant in the room, do you know what I mean? You know, when you get diagnosed um, and, it, it's, you know, it, it helps, do you know what I mean? And I think just, just say, like, ask, ask, you know, how you are, do you know what I mean? What's your hopes and fears, you know what I mean? What issues do you have around it? What's your thoughts and feelings about it? Um, and have a conversation about it, you know, because... It's difficult to bury your head in the sand, you know what I mean? Like from being like too old, you've got cancer, and then four weeks later, this is what we're going to do. That three or four weeks in between, I haven't I've mentioned, is horrific, you know? And talking about it, you know, is, is, is probably the easiest thing to do. And then, and then I read somewhere that you've got Great North Run. <laughs> now, <laughs> you've said it now. <laughs> And I, I've done the Great North Run before, and it was it was really good fun actually because I timed it perfectly for when the red arrows fly over the time oh, bridge. Oh, brilliant! Yeah, so yeah. It was just at the start of the bridge as they flew over, so I was running at the perfect pace for it. But, um, so is that <laughs> still? Me. <laughs> is that still on the uh, on the agenda? Yeah, definitely. I've, I've committed to doing it, and I'll do it. Um, what I have found was, um, so I. I my train like training so I, I really struggle with my lung capacity you know so um so i, I, I walk, i've walked quite a lot in the lockdown but it's um trying i'm hoping that when the gyms come past i can slowly 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 build that back up Um i have to say it's it looks a massive challenge at the minute but you know if you look at the past and i've had massive challenges and got through it you know and um, but as, as, as I am, I don't want to compete in the Great North Run. I want to train to win it. Do you know what I mean? That, that's sort of the mentality you have. If you're going to do something, I mean, ultimately completing the, the, the course will, will be a fantastic achievement. But in my mind now, I'm training to win the Great North Run. And that's the mentality. And it's, it's the old adage of, you know, um, I may get this wrong, but it was he shoots for the stars and all that, and you don't quite get there, you know. If I shoot for mediocrity, then it'll be it'll be a, dr a drag, you know what I mean? So, so I'm trying to go into two hours at the minute. Um, I can't drive the car 13 miles under two hours at the minute. So, uh, so yeah, but that's a challenge, you know. Why not, you know? And you, um, yeah, you know, that that that's that's a big thing at the minute. So. We'll see. <laughs> well, I, I'll look forward to uh, um, Steve Cram commentating on you, you and Mo Farah head to head down that position straight. <laughs> be like, who's the fat bloke next to Mo Farah? 